All right. Welcome to the Jaunty Mantis podcast. This is a podcast where we ask creative questions for curious gamers. And with me, as always, I have my lovely co-host, Jesse Sauer. He's selling out real estate in our outer space. Jesse, welcome to the program. Hey, thanks. Glad to be here. Uh, I was almost late. There was just a real traffic jam in the outer penumbra <laughs> of the outer darkness. Um, so, you know, but we had to, we did some blood sacrifice and it was cool. It was cool. Gotcha. Yeah. So earlier, right, right before I just, I just want to bring Go this ahead. up right before we hit record, I tried to say podcaster and said pod cancer. And uh, I'm hoping that doesn't set the theme for today's episode. That's right. Well, the theme, the setting, setting the pace for the episode is up to me. My name is Maddie, and I'm the mechanical bull that'll give a ride to anybody. And our question for this episode is... <laughs> I got you right when you were drinking. Let's just start over, because I think I used your full name. Oh, that's fine. We can, right, we can just, get it in post. Let's just start over, because I'm just trying to make you laugh in order to cheer us up before, because we, because <laughs> of our dark topics before we started. So let's let's try it again. Welcome to the Jaunty Mantis podcast. This is a podcast full of creative questions for curious gamers. And I have with me my awesome host, Jesse. <laughs> Almost said your last name there, Jesse. Welcome back to the podcast. <laughs> it is a secret to many. <laughs> yeah. Hello, I'm Jesse. <laughs> Jesse. And uh, I'm Maddie. I'm the I'm the other host of this uh, fine production, which we uh, are still having trouble getting off the ground creatively and procedurally. And our question for today's episode, you know, it, it occurred to me that maybe we should ask these questions. Like we we claim that this is a podcast of creative questions for curious gamers, but we don't start the episode off with what is this episode's question. So Jesse, what is the question for this episode? Today's question that we'll be discussing is how do you do world building with a light touch? And to sort of frame that, I think anybody that ever had the misfortune to fall deeply and madly in love with a campaign setting that's been published, and mm -hmm. I know this is uh, a number of times you've had your heart broken in this way, and so have I, as you fall in love with this campaign setting and you're all raring to go and like, I want to tell a story in this world, it'll be epic, like you know, adventure excitement hooks the players and just breathes off the pages. Guys, we're reading this. Here's the book. All right, guys, so here's your homework. And they tune out like the moment you say homework. And so all of that amazing world building lives in your head. Mm -hmm. And then maybe you get in a situation where nobody's doing it right, like mm -hmm. because they didn't bother to learn any of the setting. So how do you get a world uh, to live and breathe with player agency and buy-in. That's basically how do you world build with a light touch without requiring someone to do a doctoral thesis level of research right. on blogs, wikis, and $50 source books. 
Right, right. And I think before we discuss a light touch, we should counterbalance that with what a heavy touch is, right? A heavy touch is when, you know, you're running Eberron, you've read the books, maybe maybe one or two other players in your group have or nobody or maybe nobody else has and you are just you are just lore dumping all over everybody at every chance you can get and that's not fun for anybody. So you're trying to explain what's going on in this particular part of Corvair. And you're like, this has to do with this. And all of a sudden it starts reading like the Bible where you're like, this is the son of who is at this place and did this thing. And that's, that's with a heavy touch in my opinion. What do you think? Yeah. I mean, it's one of those things too. It's um, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm going to do a hot take. If this ever goes live, <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm just, I'm going to say this people who are into actual plays like God bless you. Mm-hmm. Uh, I am not one of those people. Me neither. And just to clarify, I do not think being into actual plays is bad or negative in any way. It's just not for me. Mm-hmm. And so when I see, like, uh, say, for example, one of the more famous live play people, and I'm I'm not going to talk about sainted Matt Mercer of the long hair, <laughs> but I'm going to talk about uh, Brennan Lee Mulligan, who is one hilarious, two incredibly talented um and three, like, I mean, I've seen some of his stuff. I wish I could get into it because I feel like that would be what I was into. Given a mm-hmm. shot, not for me, no shame, no no shade if it is for you. Um, the world building is basically paragraphs of exposition text, mm-hmm. which as someone who runs games with the style of game I run, when I watched, that was my turnoff. It's one of my two turnoffs for actual places. One there's nothing for the players to do while the DM or GM is narrating like the first three pages of a novel. Mm-hmm. Right. And if you want to write that novel, write the novel, don't put it in your game. You know, if you, if yeah. you want to write fan fiction, go ahead and do it, but don't put it in your game. You know, I'm, I'm a Jeff Kanata fan, but I'll never watch never watched the dungeon run when it was, when it was up and running. Uh, I just, you know, I just can't get into actual play. I'm a huge fan of the people behind critical role. I want them to succeed. I love the idea of people who are into, into D and D or other role-playing games, creating content and that turning into mainstream entertainment one day. I mean, right now it's niche entertainment, but like Vox Machina obviously is a huge success. And I'm not even a, I'm not even a huge fan of that show, but I watch it because it's like I want to support these nerds. Like I love that idea that that's how far we've come. But actual plays are not my thing. Like I just can't get into them. So I'm I'm definitely with you on that for sure. Yeah, and that's I mean, like what's example? What's the heaviest heaviest you've done? Um, I think like the mainly because. Game. Okay. <laughs> you know the one. <laughs> I know, but for the for the for the viewing audience, the listening yeah. audience. I I mean I hate to be that nerd who's like, hey, this listen to me about my D D game or my Star Wars game, but we were playing D20 Star Wars. I was trying to run a what was it like pre pre-prequel era, like right before the prequels essentially start, like the Jedi Order is in decline a la the prequels, but the events of the prequels haven't started yet just to kind of give the players like, Hey, we know we have frames of reference with these movies, but you can do whatever you want. Like the, those characters aren't, you won't come into contact with them. Like 
it won't matter. Right. And so what I ended up doing was just blasting you guys as players with so much exposition about what this, what the state of the galaxy was and the story I was trying to tell. And I think that harkens back to like a major, um, you know, rookie mistake in a lot of cases, but it's one I have to keep learning over and over again, uh, over again, which is like, this game isn't about you as the DM. Like that's the best thing you can do to be a, a game master is come to that realization that this game is not about you. It's about the players and the stories that they're interested in participating in. And you're just facilitating that. And I think that that was a lesson I learned after that game is I was like, no, this is my story. <laughs> like this is, I want to, I want to play in the, in the world of star Wars, in the universe of star Wars. Uh, and I'll run you up against every Matt wall I can to prove that point. So, you know, that's, you know, that is, that's I, as much as I want to go into it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I just, was that the game where I made a Kaminoan Jedi? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. I'm sorry about that. So, um, <laughs> Yeah, that's the thing is, I think as a DM, when you have like, this is your story, mm -hmm. um, it's going to go about as well for you with your story as the owners of Clamp Tower uh, had in Gremlins 2, the new batch. Right. Um, I know that's a very dated reference. If you get it, you get it. But like, it's not going to go well because you are literally releasing the Gremlins into this elaborate construction you've made and they will not stop and look at the delicate potted plant that was planted there by the master shrubber 400 years ago whose legacy was that of the king or you know like whatever you want to do they're not they're just they're not they're not and if it's in a big source book they're not going to do it i think um one of my classic ones is uh when i was like oh man, I'm so excited about Vampire 5th Edition. And so with my gaming group down here, I was like, we're going to run a V5 game um, with a bunch of people that know literally nothing about Vampire. And I'm like, you know, open-ended questions. So what do you want to do? Do you want to be like, you know, thin-blooded vampires who've just been in this society and have no idea what's going on? Or do you want to be like neonates who are like part of the society, but just learning the ropes or... Do you want to be like the like century old mid tier powered vampires? And like, we want to be mid tier century old powerful vampires. And I'm like, oh, why did I give that option? <laughs> because then the whole time we're playing, I'm like, well, you would know that as a member of the Calaria in good standing, that a boon from the prince is. And then there's like, I mean, this huge, they've done a better job in the new edition of having this meta plot, but there is this whole elaborate feudal society created and it didn't work and so when we revisited vampire later i had a whole like thing where they were at a party and the party got attacked by a vampire war party and they just got embraced into that and they knew nothing about it and they had to figure it out and that right. was a much better campaign because that got more into that world building with a light touch what's the world they need to know what's well, the modern game so conveniently mm -hmm. chicago circa 2003 don't know right. why i chose to set it there <laughs> uh because you know i can't talk about ever having lived in in chicago in 2003 but right right i think i think that's a um a step one for world building with a soft touch right is do not set your players up for ums and ahs moments right like the easiest way to introduce 
a hesitant group of players into a, a setting is to put them in a position where their characters don't know anything or as little as possible. And that way you can introduce that setting to them. So I don't know what kind of rock you live under for this example. So I apologize for it in advance, but let's say we're going back to star Wars and we say, well, your characters were slaves on Tatooine. They've only known Tatooine. And we've also, you know, as long as everybody is at least seen one movie that's got or show that's got Tatooine in it, and they all do for some fucking reason, you know, we just keep going back to that. It's a huge universe, but for some reason, we're always going back to Tatooine. So just start them out there. You've been a slave on Tatooine and go, right? You know what you've seen in the movies. We don't need to cover anything else. And then if you want to ease them into the, the greater depth of what the old Republic was, or, you know, a different era of Star Wars. Maybe you're messing around with Star Wars legacy and you want to go to Cade Skywalker's uh, time period and mess around with that nonsense, that beautiful, beautiful nonsense, then, uh, you know, then just ease them into it, right? Yep. 100%. I mean, I've even tried, like, you know, doing the the master paraphrasing and being like, here is a one-page campaign document. Mm-hmm. And... I feel like between 50 and 70% of the players, that is too much of an ask to read mm-hmm. like this one page campaign document, which, you know, uh, it's a challenge. I mean, it's, it's a serious problem for someone running games when mm-hmm. you love a world because right. you love this world. You want to tell stories in it. You don't necessarily want to tell the story of the source book but you're like, there's these touch tones, these events, uh, a thematic feel that I want to capture. Mm-hmm. And how do I, and it, I mean, like classic example, like, you know, uh, one of my favorite non D&D settings of all time is Exalted, mm-hmm. right? Like I just love Exalted for so many reasons, an animistic universe, like a fancy, excellent mashup of like the Odyssey and Journey to the West that, you know, East meets West thing all blended together, all this massive expansive lore, rock spirits that are, I mean, just like everything about it and the power level, like you can really make a difference. So what is the situation for every campaign that I've ever tried to introduce of Exalted? You have the power of a demigod. You can bend fate with your will. Here is a massive world full of rich culture and detail. What do you do? I, I don't know. I don't know anything about the world. Oh, well, uh, okay. Yeah. There, there we go. Yeah. But don't you think, cause I, I mean, I've played exalted and I played in an exalted game where you were a player and I feel like our equivalent of a session zero was not the antidote to that problem, but definitely a part of the remedy and I think that might be step two or, or part two or, or another like little side feature to with a light touch world building with a light touch, which is the session zero, like having the characters down a guided path. And I think this is where Eberron is perfect because Eberron sets the party up to have a shared history with the last war. And I think that it's it, it provides you with a like a great session zero is like, okay, you guys all served together in the last war. Let's talk about how that worked and what options are available to you. 
and not to pat myself on the, on, on my own back here, but I do want to, uh, cause what I did for our Eberron game that, um, that I'm running is that I, um, set up very specific routes for you guys to take. I said, uh, and so I, I this is where I want to get your response to it. Um, so that you can either fill me with shame or make me feel good. Uh, <laughs> but like what my goal in this, and I think that this could be useful to somebody is if you're going to do that extra work, do it in a very like, um, not railroady fashion, but just set guardrails for the players. It's, it's different to be like, here's this setting with all of these options and then to go, okay, like we're going to start this game off our, where everybody was a soldier for Siri. And here's your two options. You either were born in Siri or you, you know, immigrated, immigrated to Siri under certain circumstances, but either way you are a loyal soldier of Siri and let's go from there. So if you're an elf, here are three options within, you know, this, if you're a dwarf, here are three options that you can take, right? If you're, if you're a human, here's three routes you can take. And like, that's what I wanted to put in front of you guys. Like, was that a success? Was that a failure? Like, what did you think about it? Yeah. And I think that is also like, I'm just going to say this idea now, like that is to me, the beginning of the light touch is it's in player choice. So by presenting a player choice in those little, he made a really cool web tool, y'all. Like it was like, <laughs> it was a step through like web experience, like immerse. It was, it was, I was pretty astounded at the amount of work. And of course, Matt also knows my propensity for playing like inhuman, utterly inhuman characters mm-hmm. and then making them very, very human in the end. Mm-hmm. Um, which, yeah, I don't know if I'm doing a theme up on Strassi. Okay. Besides yeah. Um, I'm, I'm rolling dice. That's fine. Uh, <laughs> I was initially like, Oh, come on, man. You can trust me to link my party in. But then as we did it and I saw the logic behind it, I was like, this is actually really, really sweet. And it's one of those things that I always tell myself in every session. Zero is just like, remember Jesse as the DM, you're a facilitator, but you're also a player. Mm-hmm. And so you get to have fun too. So how do you do that? You say, this is the kind of story I want to tell in this, or these are the two or three stories I'm interested in in this setting. Which one is appealing to y'all? Okay, within that setting, um, I'd like you to make characters that are kind of heroic and good guys. And like, there will be some moral difficulty here, but I don't want anybody to just be like, I'm a completely immoral killer with no families or depending on your campaign frame, I want you to be a completely immoral killer with no family, Mm -hmm. except the gang you've formed together, you know, like, and then I never do it. And then I always say that. And then someone comes up with a pitch that I'm like, uh, and I don't want to kibosh their fun. And then they play it. And then the whole time I'm like, this is awkward. (laughs) So I think you found that out. And like, Here's a tortured extended metaphor. Some of you may know this, Matt knows this, that my undergraduate degree is in poetry. And so I have a lot of fancy ideas about the way that words can work. And one of the things that I really enjoy with poetry is writing incredibly short form poetry, such as haiku or ringa or things that are in this very tiny specific uh, meter or pattern and really make you think about word choice, really make you narrow it in on what you're trying to convey because you have 
so few options in which to do it, but this big feeling or this big idea. And I feel like that campaign frame was the campaign frame version of that, because what it did for me is instead of spending like, well, what does my half lizard, half crab man who wishes he was a battle (laughs) tank, but really has the heart of an artist. Like, what does his voice sound like to being like, I'm a Syrian noble. And I know from this brief little excerpt on that thing, when I picked that, that, you know, Styrians always wear gloves and they're big into masks and like half capes. Mm -hmm. So what would that look like for like a sea sorcerer? And I got to thinking about like, you know, a cured leather mask that looks like a horse, uh, a seahorse. And like his half cloak is actually like a fine fishing net woven with sea glass and all this stuff. And I'm like, this dude is a fancy lad. Like, and I got all (laughs) into like, describing my character's sartorial accoutrement in a way that I had, uh, no, I just lost any audience we might've generated from the first. Like, <laughs> we were never episodes. going to have any audience. Like two of the three of you, I'm sorry. I promise I won't do this again. Uh, or I will, I can't actually promise that. But Yeah. Yes. I, I, I loved the characters that people came up with, you know, the way that I wanted to do this session zero was, I wanted to give a piece of information about Siri, give a piece of information about the war, and then give whatever you selected for the race slash species option, whatever we're now moving into calling this, um, and then what your class options were from there. So whatever you whatever route you decided to choose i gave you three options and then you know you proceeded forward and then i took something from dungeon world which was the bond system and i said you know i gave a list of bonds uh, according to like for gnomes and halflings and you know whatever and then they had to choose a bond and then pick another uh player character over the course of this session 0 to share that with and i think that helped give everybody an idea of this is what a gnome is like, right? When somebody collect, cr- selected a gnome character, you know, one of their bonds was about like, they have a secret on somebody, you know? And and so then everybody kind of understands that gnomes are secret keepers and they're, you know, kind of sinister and, and what their place is in this world. And so I think like, that's kind of a shorthand that you can use. That's that part two of the light touch of just saying, just give them a little tidbit of what gnomes are like in this world. I think too, also the thing that worked about that is like by giving them a choice and providing a brief amount of information to make that choice, you actually found the motivation for them to read Mm -hmm. like the, the parts of the text that you had already wanted to use or had built yourself because they need that information to make an optimal choice. And that I think is going to play on most gamers desire to make optimal choices. They're going to read through it. Now, what optimal means is at best or silliest, like it's going to be different for everybody, but you've given them a real mechanism to make a choice in and to make that choice informed. They're going to read your paragraph description, um, Mm -hmm. which is fantastic. Mm -hmm. Uh, The downside is, that that requires a lot of prep mm-hmm. right which and yeah go ahead if you are a less preppy more improvisational dm like i am mm-hmm. um you know uh sorry less preparatory i'm in no way whatever as a, 
as a kid in the 80s, in no way do I mean to infer that my uh, lifelong uh, friend, Matt Hurt. Ah, Matt Hurt. Uh, Matt Holy <laughs> of the Turtle Hat. Yeah, not his last name. Uh, in no way do I mean to infer that he has ever been preppy. I would not hurl those words at my foulest enemy unless I was still in high school. In the year yeah, don't dox me, dude. Okay, sorry. So, yeah, I mean, like, it, it, and and here's the next part, I think, is that you know, because I did it, I did that session zero because I wanted them. I wanted to spark curiosity in the group to learn more, you know, and you can look stuff up on Eberron on Eberron's like, you know, focused wikis and whatnot. So I was trying to get them to become more interested at least a little bit, but the part that's a part that I felt like I did successfully and I'm patting myself on the back and getting compliments from you about it. But the the part I didn't do so well came next, which was once I had the game running, I was struggling to find points in which to help keep introducing the world to the players. And that's the part that I kind of, you know, if Keith Baker was here, I'd apologize to him for it. You know, I'd be like, you gave me, you get, you get, you gave me all these tools. You said I could make it my own. And I just, kind of froze and started defaulting to like generic fantasy. Um, so like in that regard, I, I didn't do a good job at all. And that was kind of like, that, that was a huge reason why I wanted to help do this. The wanted help for this topic is, you know, Eberron has so many great nuggets that you can just start adding in. And then I was like, how can we start doing that? Right. So once you get the game going, like step three, like how, what are what are some ways that you can start introducing that world without just taking a huge lore dump on everybody? Yeah, what would you say to that? Um, well, one thing I do want to point out too, to you know, like just to to balance the score is um, like uh, Matt's version of uh, traditional fantasy is not <laughs> in any way, shape, or form what I think most people might think of when they say the words traditional fantasy. And if I had to pick a filmic property that sidles up adjacent to what you might find in Matt's version of traditional fantasy, it would be uh, Return to Oz starring Feruza Bulk. So it is, it, when you say traditional fantasy, do not think he's talking about Tolkien. Okay. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, like any, any of, of that stuff, because it is way weirder, beautifully <laughs> right. weirder than right. that. That's very accurate. Um, so this is a thing that I've been doing more and more in games that I run. And it's a little thing I picked up listening to some uh, gauntlet podcast and it's a, a Jason Cordoba thing. Mm -hmm. um, it, I don't think he's the inventor. I don't think he would claim credit for inventing it, but a thing I learned about from that source, check them out. If you haven't, they're, they're fantastic. More into the OSR. Uh, I think mm -hmm. where my tastes not actual games played, but tastes of reading materials are going these days. Um, and it's just leading questions, which is also a thing you do in any Powered by the Apocalypse game or any Forged in the Dark game. So again, the core of that goes back to player agency and player decision. So to build that world, pick your theme or your palette mm -hmm. and then ask the players for detail. So if they say arrive in a village, right. And you have this theme you have picked out for the village, like this village is poor as hell. Like 
So you arrive in this village. Uh, Matt, what signs do you see that tell you this village is down on its luck? Mm-hmm. And right. so then that overall theme of this is a poor village, which will naturally set up a problem. Um, or maybe you already know what the problem is, but the player gets to fill in that detail and gets to be a partner in building the world as well. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. And has some ownership over it. So then you're, you're sourcing some of that from the player. Yeah. And then if we're following that through to its logical conclusion, let's say Eberron is still our campaign setting, then do you add a tidbit from Eberron to kind of finish out what the player has suggested for that scene? Like they're like, well, here's here's what I think. Um, you know, here are the signs that I notice about this small town is on hard times. And then do you have something in the chamber to add that's specifically Eberron or like, like follow it through? Oh, I'd chamber it up in the first question. Hmm. Like, even if it's just like, you know, you've heard that the house of making house Caneth once, uh, like it was recently as three years ago had a forge in this town, but now, and it made, uh, what was what famous good was made here on an industrial scale? Mm-hmm. Players tell you, okay. Now though, it looks like the tables have turned. Uh, the town definitely seems to be on hard times. What signs do you see that tells your character that uh, this town is on the verge of an economic collapse? Mm. I got you. Yeah, that's a very interesting way to do it. I'm almost. You know, I'm I'm very hesitant to put that in the hands of the players for a specific setting. But if I'm just running a game of my own with that return to Oz style, uh, you know, my version of, you know, going back to the basics of fantasy, uh, you know, then I'm much more that's much more my DM style is to involve the players to that, you know, regard like I've run games where you know, the, the player characters are in boats and they're going down the rivers. And I say, the men are whispering, they're afraid of something in the forest. What are they whispering about? What are they afraid of? And just rolling off of, you know, what the players come up with, you know, and then all of a sudden you can just start expanding that, you know, from there. I feel like, go ahead. Um, like, I think the way that you do it and with a campaign setting is you just provide like two sentences of fluff this river passes along the border of droam known as the kingdom of monsters and Mm -hmm. the men are whispering about something that they seem to be eyeing nervously at the shore that is on the droam side uh what have you heard and i mean are they gonna hit the daughters of thorakel or something like that (laughs) no of course not but they're gonna come up with some weird little cult or some little hobgoblin hit squad that is the way in to introducing that next thing up you know, up the chain and it's Mm going to be way more personal and it's going to feel like it's their story. And because you gave that leading question with that little prompt of like, this place is called the kingdom of monsters. Like, what are they afraid of in the kingdom of monsters? Like, and you just make that thing fit. Mm -hmm. Right. Okay. Yeah. I see that. So what do we do then? 
like our next step then like what do we do if we want to impart some major lore then and this can be something again with a light touch like one of the things i want to do in the eberron game that i'm running is i really want to make use of how many moons eberron has um and you know this is this is this is um if you're gonna run a game that takes place in a setting if there are novelizations or fiction from that setting that you can read or if there are movies or shows or whatever like really look for things little things that you can then assign onto that and i started listening to one of keith baker's books in eberron and he mentions you know the glow that's coming off the moon and which moon it is and how that i think i believe it's like a purple glow that's coming off of the moon and i was like okay i'm going to use this and i at first i was like really struggling because you know by i don't know what episode we're on but by now you know it i don't have to keep repeating myself i hate box text and i hate just reading stuff out but then i start getting into that mode where all of a sudden i've written like two paragraphs about what the sky looks like and how this is where all the moons are and there's this faint purple glow over everything. So it's like, you know, that's one of the things that I'm really struggling with uh, for Eberron. So I guess this episode is more of like gamer therapy for me. Uh, But like, how do you impart like some, some either small lore nuggets or something major to the group without just like taking that big lore dump that we keep mentioning on the party? Well, I see, here's the thing too, and this goes back to like the way that we phrase the topic. You're, you're building upon an existing thing because we're world building. Mm -hmm. And to me, building is not just conveying lore because that's Mm -hmm. already built. You've got to get that. Your agency is the person telling, you know, facilitating a story, presenting challenges and hooks as the DM or GM, um, and then to me that it just always goes back to player agency. Like, and I feel like at the end of this, we record all the episodes that are going to be this season. I'm going to have said the word agency at least like three times, like in mm-hmm. every episode. Mm-hmm. So I'm sorry. I keep coming back to that, but like, I mean, like, okay. Um, I'm going to get this wrong. Cause it's been so long, but it's just like, uh, the night is utterly still in the desert. The smaller moon, Ral, is rising just above the horizon. You're reminded of something your aunt told you about Ral when you were a small child. What was it? Mm. I got you. Going back to the, you know, engaging the player in order to help it stick. Mm-hmm. I got you. So just keep expanding on that then. And then here's the here's the other thing that just occurred to me as well and i think this is something that lazy dm mike shea does is that he has like tables for things and it makes i think i might be just stealing this directly right out of his mouth so if that's the case like that's where it came from but like in the context of that setting are you a fan of creating like a predetermined like i know he's big on tables right And if I'm remembering correctly, there are tables that have certain features or aspects. And I guess for my purposes, like if you're moving through a specific part of the game that takes place in this, like, like in the, uh, in the goblinoid empire, if you're moving through those lands, since, 
you know, they, the goblinoids and Eberron, you know, ruled everything on Corvair up to a certain point till they were started to get eradicated by the humans. So there's all this like goblin statues and old architecture still there. And I feel like, do you think it would be useful to have those Mike Shea style tables where it's just like, oh man, I'm looking for something roll. It's a, it's a goblin warrior that's carved into the face of that cliff or whatever the case may be. Like, are you a fan of that? Like, do you use stuff like that? Cause you know, I, I tend to not, not go that route, but I'm I use them I for should. prep. I use them for prep. I okay. don't necessarily use them on the fly. Mm-hmm. Um, because like, what's the point? Of doing, you're just going to have to either have your table ready, and if you're, you know, the moment you're at three or four tables, in addition to your notes, monster statistics, character sheets, all this other stuff, to me, it gets really, really unwieldy. Um, I think a sly, slightly shady thing you can do is to have like pre-rolled on all your tables for what you're expecting or you might need um, mm-hmm. ahead of time, and then when it gets to the point, be like, well, hold on a second, and then you roll a dice. You see, but you already have, you know. Like make them feel like it's random, <laughs> but, you know. Yeah, I mean, I could see using that for prep, right? Like you create tables for prep. Like, well, they're in the mountains and they're in this part of the world, and I need, I need something. What is it? But like in the moment, I feel like having, um, you know, a set list of things that you can draw from. I think would be better served for me yeah, if personally. I, if I were better at, you know panning for time uh like that is a dm skill i've never really developed and i know i'm authorized to you and it's one of those things that's abstract knowledge and never applied of just be like someone poses a situation or i'm at a thing where i don't know what's next you're allowed to say let's take a five minute bathroom break while i think Mm -hmm. about this and then you could go roll on your table but Mm. like my whole improv thing is like keep it going and so mm. like i never do that i just you know lean into not always the best trope that happens to be adjacent to what we're doing so um right yeah i like i like tables for prep obviously you're not going to be able to anticipate every situation people might be into um and the uh, age of sigmar game i'm running on uh, using the foundry the mm-hmm. new virtual tabletop i've been playing with um like i have put in some rollable tables from the adventure module i'm in just to be like if they find an island as they're doing the sailing part to be like okay roll 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 the island is this um mm-hmm. but i could have just as easily you know um could have just as easily like just pre-statted those islands so right i just kind of wanted to play with the rollable table feature and see if i could figure out how to make it work and i did Mm-hmm. Uh, but I mean, like, okay, that's a little bit aside from world building, but as you're building your portion of this world. So this is a, a pre-made adventure module, Shadows in the Mist, uh, by Cubicle 7 Games and the Soulbound, the Age of Sigma role-playing game, um, which is really fun because instead of saying, welcome to the world of Dungeons and Dragons, I get to say, welcome to the Age of Sigma, which is, you know, good good times. <laughs> um but I'm, they're at this part that's a sea voyage, and the adventure module lists out, and I'm thinking about this and world building. I mean, they're giving me some places to build in, but there's just like random encounter 
this specific planned encounter, random encounter, random encounter, planned encounter, random encounter, planned encounter. And then mm. there's a table of random encounters to roll on. Mm. And I don't think the design impulse is just like, you know, necessarily be like, as it comes up, surprise yourself. Because that's always great to do as a DM when you need monster yeah. stats and blah, blah. Surprise yourself with what's there. But yeah, I, I, I never understood the random encounter, random, you know, random nature of, of the hobby. Because it's like, you know, if you want to make somebody feel more pressure, it's like give them something random and chaotic to work with. You know, like I would much rather you know, for like for our Eberron game in, in our first part, it takes place on the day of mourning. Um, you know, the player characters are involved. Wait, in it does. To... Yeah. <laughs> you know, that <laughs> session zero. Um, but you know, there's an element where you're with the player forces are interacting with, you know, the greater Carnathy army. And it's like my equivalent of random encounters. Cause this is what I started doing to try to like help flesh out the world a little bit better is like, I don't want random encounters. I don't want a random monster table. What I want is like a button, you know, like if I need something that would be the equivalent of a random monster table, I want to be like, well, I, I made this encounter over here and I'm just going to insert it. Like, you know, the player characters bombed the bridge and took out the Carnathy army on its way, you know, to, to sack that Syrian city. And now the Carnathy army has launched a Carnathy kill squad. Right. And so if I need a random encounter, I've got Carnathy kill squad, let's throw it into the game. And now the party has to tangle with that. Like, I don't like being, I don't do a lot of prep, <laughs> so I don't want to have to do more work in the moment with a random monster table. You know, you, do, you so, do more prep than I do. I do. I, I I do way more prep than you do. Yeah, for sure. Um, but I don't like to do a lot of extra prep. Like it, it's something I'm definitely trying to wean myself off of. I mean, I think too a lot of the tools I've been using um, lately. And here's the other thing I probably say every episode. Uh, so Kevin Crawford of Stein Nomine, like. Um, like has all these tables that are designed basically for prep. Like, mm -hmm. so you can basically like do this one roll with all your polyhedral. And it's basically like a tarot reading of like, here's a site. Mm -hmm. Here's the people who are there. Here's what they want. Here's a thing. Here's a friend. Here's an enemy. Make sense of it if you want to. But this is a site. You could write it up in like a single page. And then, if you know, the players say what's over the next hill because it's designed for hex crawl style play, which we don't do a bunch of. Right. Um, and it's a gameplay style I like uh, in theory. I don't mm -hmm. have a ton of experience with it, but I like it in theory. Um, and I think that is really another place where this idea of world building with a light touch can shine because you can ask those questions if you've rolled up on that table a tag of like religious strife, like you know, they come into town. What do you see that tells you that there's two different cults here and they are flitting throats, like, mm. or, you know, whatever. Hey, maybe one of your players just made your cult for you. Um, mm. And then I think if you're doing that within an established framework, then you get to have that secret to yourself. I'm like, oh, okay, they, well, they named this cult and this is what they do. And 
you know, this write down a note, how are they connected to the Lords of Dust? Uh, and then like for your prep, be like, okay, they're connected to the Lords of Dust here. If you're using Mike Shea's thing, you know, like Lazy DM, like what's a secret this cult leader has that'll totally show the connection to the Lords of Dust? Mm-hmm. And then, you know. Gotcha. The, the cult kills the party's donkey, so the party goes after him and they search the cult leader and find this strange, you know. Right. Right. So then how do we handle major events or major lore pieces that are essential to a setting? Like how do you do that with a light touch? Cause I think, I think it, I think it's kind of, it might be a cop out to be like, we'll just avoid them entirely. Like it's one thing for me to want to run a star Wars prequel game that has a point of reference, but then takes place before the major events to give people the freedom to do whatever the fuck they want and take the story wherever they want to go. But at the same, but you still want the Clone War to kick off, right? Like you still want things to, because like otherwise, why are you using the setting, right? So yeah, if if we're running a Star Wars game and it's in that era, then you need those key set pieces or those key lore nuggets or those key fixtures of the setting. So how do you do that with a light touch? Then yeah, you just fronts, fronts from Dungeon World. Explain. Like um, so fronts and dungeon world are basically where you have like an omen of things to come. So if I was like, um, you know, if I was being like, say the clone wars, right. They're on some mid rim planet. That's the center of our adventure hub, blah, blah, blah. They're, you know, doing all these things here. And one day they're walking through town uh, and there's a charismatic young man with a small crowd. And he's standing up talking about the corruption of the Senate and how, you know, the senator is exploiting the people and blah, blah, blah. This is just a thing that happens in the background. Do they engage with it? Do they not? I don't know. It's up to the players. Mm-hmm. But if they ignore it, you know, next thing you know, like there's a Republic like ambassador and they're happening to meet a contact or something when there's an explosion. Um, and it's, you know, and you just keep escalating. I will, I will say this. Uh, the Age of Sigmar has this cool little background system um, called uh, Rumors, Fears, and Threats. And so basically you introduce a rumor and there's actually a party character sheet to keep track of the rumors on. And if the party doesn't set a personal goal to go mm-hmm. deal with this rumor, then at your next convenience, the rumor becomes a fear and it escalates. Gotcha. And then, you know, like if they don't deal with it, then it becomes a threat. And if right. they don't deal with the threat, then so as you're playing, obviously, like that rumors list gets longer and then so does the threats. And then there's real decisions they have to make because there's another neat little mechanic in Soulbound called the called Doom that like doesn't have a real big mechanical effect. But it's basically at Doom 1, people go to the marketplace and buy bread for their families at doom seven stray dogs like fight over the corpse of someone who braved the streets to try and steal bread like you know like it excessively like how much is the bad guys winning and how do you see those signs in the world mm-hmm. so um gotcha. i don't know that's does that make sense i just went yeah. off on a long long sort of tangent there no but it it does make a lot of sense and you know i i think that I think it's important to remember that, you know, if you are running a game 
that takes place in an established setting, whether it's something as popular as Star Wars or something as, you know, uh, you know, something else that's not as popular. I think it's important to have like almost like a group contract at the beginning, like a spoken contract that says like, Hey, everybody, we all love Star Wars, right? This is not canon. We're like, I, I don't want to get into arguments about like that would have never have happened or you mixed up this alien species with that alien species. Like we're here to have fun. Like we're not here to like write fan fiction that we're going to present to George Lucas. Like, you know, yeah, it's, it's like, let, let's just like make an agreement that like some things can kind of get messed up. And I think that, um, I think for the final point that I want to make it with a light touch is if you have someone in your group, like in, in my Eberron game, it's Jesse, um, that if you have someone in your group that is very knowledgeable about the setting and he's very knowledgeable about Eberron, and when somebody asks a question, what is this like? Or, you know, you know, like, what should I expect from this? Like, instead of answering that myself, I will often turn to Jesse and, and ask him to explain it. And for a while, I wasn't sure why I was doing that. I'm like, I should be like the reference point for this. But I got it in my head that it was like, there's this, there's this thing in sales about how like, if you're selling something, you should use third party references. You shouldn't be the expert. Like you shouldn't be like, I'm selling you something. Trust me. You should at every opportunity use third party references. Well, let me tell you about this person. They had a similar experience and this is what they came back with. And for some reason, that's way more valuable to somebody you're selling to instead of saying like, well, take it from me that happens and this is what you do about it. So anytime you can use a third party reference. And I feel like that's what I've been doing with Jesse is I'm like, well, Jesse is one of the players, right? So like, I'm going to let him be the source of expertise on what exactly is Eberron in this group. And I feel like that, that has a place on this list as far as lore building with a light touch is like, let one of the players be that if, if they are willing to do it, you know, maybe it's easier for Star Wars because people know different things. But like, what do you think about that? Like, make somebody else the proxy expert in your game. Yeah, I mean, if somebody has that skill set, I think that's definitely a way to go. And I think one of the things too, just like for context of uh, like our game group, and I'm not saying that this discounts it, but one of the things I think that that works really well is that as gamers of a certain age. <laughs> who grew up with a certain set of uh, rules when we started playing Advanced Dungeons mm -hmm. and Dragons 2nd Edition or Advanced Dungeons and Dragons 1st Edition. Mm -hmm. um, and then, like, we're already adults when 3.0 dropped. I mean, young adults, but adults. Sure. Um, like, there is a, a certain assumption of a friendly, not toxic, but a friendly, possibly lightly adversarial relationship between... <laughs> a DM and a player group. Mm -hmm. And so co-opting a player <laughs> to mm -hmm. be the source of the lore bypasses that. Cause I'm just like, Oh, well, yeah, this guy's another player. He's a PC there. He's not going to randomly throw a monster at me when I'm trying to make a, you know, a rest to regain my hit points. So I can trust what he says. Right. Exactly. He's not out to kill me. Yeah. 
I think that's, you know, the inherent trust point in that, in that scenario. I mean, maybe there's, maybe there's established like Grognar GMs out there who are screaming, uh, at their, at their devices while they're listening to this. I don't know, but, uh, screaming out into the ether. I'm not sure, but that's what's worked for me. Do you have any advice in that same realm, you know, as far as imparting, uh, information, some tricks that you've used in the past before we wrap this up? I think it just goes back to, um, one of the things that I learned about being a teacher when I was a teacher in a previous life. Sorry if this is the information that doxes me. Um, but, uh, (laughs) When I was a teacher in a previous life, one of the things I really believed about the classroom is that you needed to have a community of learners mm. and that for it to be a successful learning experience and that you can't have a community when only one person is making the choices. Mm-hmm. Um, that is not a community. That That is, you know, uh, an employee relationship or however you want to, you know, describe it. So the more choices that you can give people uh, not to overwhelm them with choices. I'm not saying like, send them, like send them to a grocery store in a foreign country and ask them to buy you cereal. Um, But like the more things you can do to make them feel like their choices matter in that, that space, the more they're going to feel like it's community, the more they're going to have a sense of psychological safety. And then the more they're going to be engaged Mm-hmm. which also leads to them being co-authors in the space, which I think if you're telling a story together, you want people to be, um, but it also makes them more collaborators. And one of the things that I used to do, this was dumb and it was little and it was petty. And I know it, it may sound incredibly manipulative, but I mean it from a place of sincerity is when I was going to write on the board as a teacher, I had all my whiteboard markers out there. I'd pick a student and I'd say, which color should I use? Hmm. And then whatever color they picked, they'd go with. Or Mm -hmm. if they had me writing something on the board for them, I would be like, can I make a correction to this and get their permit? Like all these things to be like, I am not the authority here. I am a partner and a collaborator in this community. And I think all of those are really good instincts to port over to running a tabletop role-playing game. Right, right. It's the natural extension of this is not my story I'm a facilitator and a player having fun with this group of my friends. Yeah. And I think, you know, one of the things we keep, you know, uh, coming back to is that player involvement. And I think I want to do an episode about player involvement. And I think that this next point could lead into that topic, but like there's this trick in, I don't know if this is used across the board in design, but, um, for the people that I know who have worked in like, um, you know, marketing and design when they have a client, sometimes uh, a firm will give the client three options, um, when they're given, you know, like a, a job to do like, to, like to, you know, for a design, like a, let's say we're rebranding or we're creating a marketing piece or whatever the case may be. Um, they'll give them three options based on what they described that they wanted for them to choose from. They'll give them the safe option. They'll give them the closest thing to what they thought was communicated about what they wanted. And then they'll give them like the spicy option, like the like slightly out there option to, and the whole, the way that I understand it. And if there's design people out there who know this better than me, by all means, uh, shout me down. But, um, I guess my understanding is the goal of this is to get them 
into that middle category that like making a decision is hard, right? So even when you start asking players for input, you know, because like, that's my, like, that's my nightmare scenario is like, I've got this world of Eberron to share. I want to use the Jesse technique of involving them in it. And they're just staring back at me going, uh, 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 you know, so like, is that a technique that you think you could use for like lower building with the soft touch is like, get, you know, getting them involved in it by giving them three options to get, to interact with, to kind of like piggyback on what you're saying, or what I, do you think? I would like at the table in an actual play experience, I would shy away from that. Okay. Um, because that is getting them to choose the options I designed for my story. Okay. I see. Um, and then I'm like, I mean, be interested to try. I know that you've like, you've done that with helping new players and it's really great for new players to have. You can do this, you can do this, you can, or you can do this. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's not world. That's not in the context, of course, of world building. That's in the context of like, what can my player character do in this game? Cause mm-hmm. I've got this huge list of skill names and some numbers and I don't know. I'm just like, well, you knew this. Was a bit. Um, I think and this again goes back to the teaching experiences. If someone had a blank face, I'd be like, take your time. And then like, can anybody help out and let, you know, like ideally you want to train yourself to kind of shoot it around the table. So everybody's getting a chance to make those decisions and Hey, it's a skill, mm-hmm. you know, it's flexing that creative muscle in a meaningful way. But the more you do it, the more it becomes an expectation at the table, the better players get at it. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. All right. Well, let's table that part of it for that episode specifically, although I think you made your point very well. And um, so I think that one is 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 set. Uh, is there anything else you wanted to add for world building with a soft touch before we call it? I mean, I think at the end of the day, uh, remember that no one is going to, this is a variation of kill your darlings. No one's going to love your darlings as much as you do. Mm-hmm. No one's going to read the biography of your darlings. And mm-hmm. so take the aspects of your darling you find the prettiest and let people make choices about the way it's expressed in the world. And you're going to be in a pretty good place of getting to play the story you like while building your own version of it right with the assistance of your players i just think yeah, right that's... and i i mean i would also add like look you don't work for netflix and you're not trying to bring the witcher to life like you're just playing a game with your friends and you're just fucking around and having fun you know so just remember that like you don't need to get it exactly right i mean unless you do actually work for netflix and you you are working on the witcher and then just completely disregard what I said, but yeah, you know, just have fun with it. Like you don't have you, you, unless you're George Lucas running a fucking D 20 star Wars game. Like, I don't think you have to be responsible for it. You know, you can just, you can just have fun with it and be like, well, you know, we want to capture the essence of star Wars, but we're not, you know, we're not sticking to the specifics. We don't yeah, have to, I, we're just here to have fun. We're not here to rewrite have the, it. Like you're not, you should have the Boolean version of Star Star Wars, not you know, not necessarily uh, a stock made from the bones of a live, you know, Star Wars chicken, um, right. which would be a rat monkey, basically like salacious crumb. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. Well, you know, 
on that note, let's wrap this episode up. Jesse, you know, it, these, these conversations of ours are a treat. Uh, and if people want to interact with you, engage you online, how can they do so? Uh, I own a Twitter account that I use only to lurk and it is at jingoist fet. Um, and that's about the only social I'm on. All right. I'm willing to share. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, definitely. And if you, how about you? Oh no, I, social okay. media is a crime against humanity. I, I have social media accounts, but I don't like using them. I don't, don't worry about it. Don't. How don't. is the powerful AI pointed at your brain going to learn what you want and need? So it can tell you what you want and need if you don't engage with it, Matt. <laughs> I don't know. I can't help it. I think social media is a mistake. We're all going to look back on and laugh at. So, uh, but do we, you know, do we have an email address set up for the show? If you have a creative question, for these two curious gamers, maybe we can set that up in the future. We do actually have a Twitter account. Oh, okay. Uh, it is. Uh, it has art. Fantastic. Um, and uh, I try to avoid it because uh, I set it up like right after uh, a certain billionaire purchased Twitter. And now every time I look at it, it just feeds me alarming right-wing fear-mongering crap. But let me just confirm real quick, because this makes great podcast while mm -hmm. I look at the handle of the Twitter I made but never used. Uh, it is at Jaunty Mantis. Mm -hmm. There you go. So if you want to, if you have a creative question for these two curious gamers, send it to whatever Jesse just said. And please try to refrain from asking us questions like, why do you suck so bad? I mean, the answer is that we don't really care about this one way or another. We're not here to make money. We just like talking to each other. And at the end of the day, this is just an excuse for me to get online with my best bud and have an awesome conversation. So, I mean, you could ask those questions if you want, but it's not really going to go very far because we don't really care. But if yeah, you're I'm, I'm not here to make friends. I already did. And he's my best friend. And... <laughs> yeah. So I right. win <laughs> no matter what. I win. Right. This is not an aliens versus predator. Well, for you it is, but for us it's, you know. True. Yeah. All right. So, until next time, we have an ending slogan. Play go, fuck, play, go fuck, play some fuck, fucking games play, and shit. Go play some fucking games and shit, I think. Roll some dice. Roll some dice. Yes. Okay. All right. It's called role-playing, not role-playing. Ooh.